Youngbloods acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands where we work and live. We celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This podcast was produced by Youngbloods New South Wales in partnership with Massive Music. Now let's get into the show. Today, we are sitting down with Cam Blackley, CCO of MNC Saatchi. Cam started his career as a young creative copywriter in Melbourne. Following that, he took opportunities in world-renowned agencies across the globe. Ultimately, this began an eight-year-long relationship with Droga5, as Cam would eventually join the leading team tasked with bringing Droga back to his homeland here in Australia. It was back here in the motherland where Cameron would start to take on key executive roles in Australian agencies giving him the ability to come into his own as a key playmaker, a creative leader in the industry. So we'll kick it off with learning a bit about Cam when he was a young blood himself, seeing as though this is the Young Blood podcast. I'm in the background, yeah, my background story, hey? Yeah. How about we start with, you know, your humble beginnings? How did you get started in this industry? Well, humble, maybe. I've been both sides of the coin, right? I'm a, I'm a writer, but I've also been an art director, but I... I was studying graphic design at RMIT and it turned into an advertising course. I wasn't the greatest graphic designer, so it was probably a blessing. I didn't want to go to the campus that the design course had moved to, which is about an hour out of Melbourne, so I was feeling a bit lazy and I was like, well, I've probably got a bit of an inkling as to how advertising works, so I'll give that a crack. So I did that, but just before I'd finished the course, I entered a, um, a copywriting competition in a newspaper and landed a job writing retail ads at Grey Advertising in Melbourne. So I was doing the catalogues for three years, trying to take opportunities and take briefs where I could. I worked with Jason Williams, who's the, um, what's his, is he regional CCO or national CCO of Leo Burnett's? But yeah, we were a team there and, you know, we tried to do little fun things and make the most of it. And yeah, that was it. In Learning my craft, learning not to put a decimal point in the wrong spot, otherwise it was going to cost retrovision a million bucks. So, I can relate to the idea of being a graphic designer and then feeling like maybe I'm not going to be great at graphic design. I feel like I didn't have the patience to do like tedious layout positioning and yeah. get everything lined up perfectly. I was much more of a creative that was fluid and just wanted to be a bit more free and just take things, muck them up and see where they land. Oh, right. Whereas, yeah... It's funny because I wholeheartedly believed in my skill until I saw how talented other people were and I was like, oh, okay. But I think I saw that later on in life, the likes of Dave Dye, Paul Belford, sort of great art directors who really have a keen eye for design. And Paul Belford is a, is a graphic designer with an incredible creative and lateral brain and he really sort of married that art direction and design skill together. And mm. no matter how many times you or I would look at his work – it's unmimicable, yep. even though it looks so simple. And I was like, well, I was always a good writer. I think I've got ideas. Mm. And I've been able to just chameleon in my younger years between different jobs. So when it suited me, when I needed a job in the UK, I was able to fall back on art direction skills and really learn from people. But never was I ever going to cut it mm. with the top graphic designers in yeah. the world. Yeah. yeah. So what was your favourite trait about yourself as a young creative? It's a tough one. It's not a secret. My dad was in advertising, so I'd been around it. So I, I kind of understood the ropes. Guess I felt I had potential, but probably 
a bit lazy. Like I got resilience and potential mm-hmm. back then. I thought they're probably the two. It's a, it's a strange question because I was trying to think about it because I nothing that I thought other than disdain for myself at, at <laughs> most <laughs> most stages of my younger life. But I always felt that I could do it. I think there was an epiphany. We'll talk about that later on where I really went, oh, okay, bang, and it really clicked in. And I think there was some really good thinking along the way and there was some stuff where I certainly could have worked harder. The drive didn't really kick in until later on and and then things sort of ramped up. All right, well, let's jump into it. So when do you think uh, in your career that you really found a moment that you were able to hit your stride? It was quite a few years in, and as as I said, I did four years at Grey Advertising, and we interviewed Jason and I at various places and thinking, you know, would we move to Sydney or whatever, and it finally became apparent that, for me particularly, that I had to go overseas and I had to go and, I'll look back at it now, but get punished by the best, test myself against the best, because we're doing little bits and pieces, but we weren't setting the world on fire, and I thought, well... There's only one way to find out, and that's to go to the UK at the time, which is the place. I think along the way there was a lot of near misses, so I saw ideas that I was having either with Jace or he only stayed in London briefly, or I was having with other people, and you almost make stuff and you go like, well, you can see that if you made that, that would be really good. Then I wrote some Economist ads with my creative partner at the time, Ben, who I was talking about with you earlier on, who's got a great advertising brain and he's a a real student of the business and he knows every single ad that was ever made. And yeah, we made some economist ads. I think the thing about that is they won some trophies, but it was started years earlier by David Abbott. And so all it really became for us was an intellectual uh, intellectual pursuit. Yeah, It wasn't like, am I creating something from scratch, something meaningful and something really kind of interesting that kind of turned things on its head. So to answer your question, because I'm going the long way around, there was a campaign that I did for Snickers in the UK and I sweated the absolute shit out of that one. Like absolutely too much time in retouching, like so many rounds, like every colour, every line on there in the work, like obsessive mm. so. But the thing about that campaign was we put on a, a series of skate events with UK professional skaters. We photographed their broken helmets and casts. I was a skater when I was young, but we got Jim and Jimbo Phillips who used to do all the Santa Cruz skateboard art back in the day to do some artworks for us. We created merchandise, we created skateboards. So it was kind of the first time that I'd ever put together a truly integrated campaign that wasn't just a print ad, a radio ad, a TV ad, but it was really thinking about what was the ecosystem that was going to sit around the consumer at the time or young people. Mm. At the time, Snickers was very much about energy in the UK and their line was game on and I always thought that was a terrible line. I understood the strategy. It's almost like the strategy was showing too much, but I rewrote a new line and it's on all the work and it was get some nuts. (laughs) And I really felt that sort of tapped into the voice of the consumer and it ended up becoming their line on all their work straight afterwards. So I made that campaign, highly proud of it, too invested in it and ultimately it led to me getting fired so <laughs> <laughs> no way no well I was made redundant and I've spoken about being redundant I have no I had a lot of shame in it back then but I see it as a uh, something that I think needs to be spoken about because it happens in the business and you can see it as a real opportunity uh, but I did feel just as I was going like oh I get this I was then knocked down a peg and that's what happens you know and you can 
think you're king shoot one minute and you're down in the dumps the next, but you can use it as an opportunity. And I saw it as the kick up the ass that I needed at the time and I'm highly grateful for it now. It was a real accelerant to my career and, and it did kind of take off from there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's an interesting lesson to be learned in there. It's it's like people strive to do bigger and better work, but it's never going to be one step up every single time. You're not going to create a great piece of work and then the next piece of work is going to be better and then it's going to be better. In fact, it's going to be... It doesn't always work that way. I mean, Droger might be one of the only people who's probably done that consistently, but <laughs> even he has tiny dips, or not him personally, but the work coming out of his shops can be great, super great to great again and then yeah. super great, you know what I mean? But you know, it very much is a, a peaks and troughs industry and I think every time you kind of believe your own bullshit and get and let the hubris take hold, you get a wake-up call and, and that happened and it's a good thing. So it, everything's been a lesson for me in how to deal and how to grow as I move forward in the industry and I'm still to this day learning every day. Yeah. Trying to be a better person, <laughs> I guess. With the um, Get Some Nuts campaign, do you yeah. feel like from the beginning it had legs to be something great or do you think it was that extra bit of energy that you put into craft and focus and attention that brought it to that space? Well, it was such a niche project, right? We were asked to talk to skateboarders. There was an event that we had to tie into and then we sort of made a whole lot of stuff come to life around it and we created editorial and, and everything I saw the line get some nuts as having a great amount of potential. After I left, that campaign was continued on by other people. Like I saw Paul Belford, uh, Ben Kay, Paul Young did a, another round of work, which was absolutely beautiful design work. It wasn't as experiential, but it was just beautiful classic print. But the line was adopted and I kind of always... I always kind of smiled at myself and I, I re-looked up that work today and there's get some nuts all over it and then they did can't remember the creatives so I wasn't there but I, I do know them but the, it's, it's my mind at the moment but they did a Mr T campaign where the line became get some nuts mm. and game on left so that I, I guess I take credit for getting rid of that, an, an awful line and replacing it with yeah. something with a, a little bit more um, for the voice of the consumer. And your instinct must have obviously been right when you know that you had that line and then being able to see a bunch of people take it and just keep extrapolating Well, I think that's it. the thing, isn't it? And I think we don't own anything. You can write a line and you really hope that anything that you create lives on beyond you. For a writer, I think that's one of the greatest achievements, I guess, to see that what you've started and something, an enduring platform, enduring line can live on through mm. multiple agencies. And you see that with 100% New Zealand, which mm. started at MSC Saatchi and has gone through multiple iterations, multiple agencies, and it just keeps on giving. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit before about working in London, but you've also worked in New York City, two of the biggest meccas for advertising. Yep. But also two very different places in the world. Coming from Australia, what is the biggest challenge when facing a new audience, particularly one that has very different morals, values, uh, ways of living and just ways of thinking? What is something that you need to consider when advertising in different countries? Yeah, well, they are very different audiences, but there's also commonality, right? So I know the US, there's a 40% speak Spanish, but really if we think about them, they're all English-speaking languages. Even think about Australians, Americans and British, we're sort of three people divided by one language in a way. So I guess the nuances in humour, in words, you know, that's something you get used to. But I think if you're 
pretty in tune with tone and tone is super, super important in this business and it's actually everything. You can certainly navigate that and you can certainly communicate. You can certainly write advertising for any of them and, and don't forget that you also have locals there who help steer you in the right direction if you start going off on one. But I guess the more culture shock is here, very little money and very little time for the most part and over there, lots and lots of time. You know, I guess with time comes craft and comes the ability for you to sweat it and really think deeply about it. Also, I guess exponentially sort of increases the the chance that the work will fall over, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so sometimes speed speed is not a bad thing and then sometimes speed is horrible. Like, you know, if you're, you're working in America and you're the brief, you've got 12 to 18 months before you're going to produce something, for a creative person that, that can be tyranny. So rather than thinking about... Oh, what's the difference between communicating between them? I think, you know, as advertising, you have a great idea. Some ideas are human truths and they're universal. Mm. Some are very particular to local markets and you, you'll pick up on that being in a new country and whatever and you can work it out. Well, I'm not a writer, but I imagine that being able to adjust tones is not only half the job, but if you can do it really exceptionally well, it's a superpower. Adjusting the tone of voice to something that you're not familiar with. I think so. And I was writing uh, I was writing an article, you know, that was asked to do 200 words or 300 words, which is nothing on um, Christmas ads. Has anything's changed in the way that Christmas ads are made? And I don't really think so. But what I did say was the context dictates the tone, right? Mm. And you need to be in tune with that, right? You need to know the tone of a brand, but you also need to know what's going on at the moment and we see something like the cost of living crisis it means that like super flamboyant over the top decadent christmas ads probably going to fall a bit flat right because mm. then you need to have a certain amount of, of empathy so tone you can think about in many ways you have to actually you know if you understand the tone of of a brand you can't go wrong but also you've got to marry it with the context of where you're at in a moment in time and how the work is going to be perceived mm. So you got to immerse yourself in the culture and also well, make sure just, you do a bit of light reading. Just look, just look around <laughs> you sometimes, man. Read, read the papers and watch the news. <laughs> cool. Actually, I was just thinking about this. It's been on topic of what we are just talking about. I watched recently a, an interesting breakdown of the difference between comedy in the UK and the USA. Mm-hmm. And it was very... I did a really cack-handed job of it, but you, you probably, <laughs> you'll do a good job of it, I'm sure. Was, just really top level, it was like UK has a lot more... They don't have happy endings in their comedy. It's usually very dire and everything kind of falls apart. What's the dryness of it, isn't it? Like, yeah. And I think, and the bleakness of life is actually quite funny. <laughs> and, you know, look at the life of Brian uh, and, you know, the people being crucified and singing mm. simultaneously. Yeah. And that's the absurdity yeah. and the bleakness of that. Yeah. The yeah. humor's found there. I literally watched that two weeks ago, actually. So. That's hilarious. And then, and then a naughty boy. (laughs) And then American humor. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a resolution. That's very much uh, all you're seeing is the personality of each country sort of shine through, right? Yeah. Americans are inherently optimistic, and that's a generalization, but it's really a place where people are raised, being told they can be whatever they want to be. They can make it. Everyone has the opportunity to. Absolutely reach for the stars. Hmm. I could generalise why the English are 
uh, I, could, I could talk about the class system maybe or the tribalness of each of the towns, the colloquialism that sort of exists within a county right down to a city. There's probably a whole lot of reasons why the English have turned out the way that they've turned out. <laughs> but I enjoy both. And I think as Australians, we also have our niche, which is sometimes dumb humour, but we also have the great benefit to enjoy English and American humour and kind of draw on them and mm. sort of paint with those colours as well. Mm. Yeah, I've never thought about it deeply, what the Australian humour really is, because it's kind of like... Sarcastic, I guess, you know? Like, you know, there's a laconicness to it. For me, it would lean slightly more towards English. Mm -hmm. Probably a little less bleak, I don't know. Yeah. I think sarcastic. Yeah, Yeah. sarcasm is king. Lowest form of (laughs) humour. So recently you've created a piece of work that exceeds the expectations of what many young professionals ever expect to work on when they sign up for this job. Can you tell me a little bit about the short film that you've done for the Tourism Australia brand? If you want to maybe go watch it, you can listen to me talk about it, but if you just type into YouTube, G'day the short film, it's nine minutes. I honestly think it feels like about a three and a half, four minute watch. So that's the biggest piece of work that I think I'll ever make. Well, it's definitely the biggest work that I've ever made. I do want to point out that there's about 50 people who have worked on that. Yeah. And then hundreds of animators and the amount of thinking and brains that have got into that. So I never claim uh, full responsibility for it, but I approved it. I liked it. (laughs) I helped write some of the funny bits in it, as did a lot of people. But I I would claim all the funniest jokes are the the ones that I wrote. (laughs) But, yeah, it's just a phenomenal privilege to work on Tourism Australia anyway. It can be nothing better than selling your country. And, you know, we did Mate Song a few years ago just as the bushfire struck or just that was such ill timing. But it was another great piece of work. But the that was very specific for the UK. And then, you know, uh, Droger in New York the year before or 18 months before had done Dundee. That was very specific for the US. What we were asked to do with this piece of work is make one piece of work for the globe. And when you think about, you know, we were talking cultural nuances before just between England and the UK and Australia. Now we're talking about Germany, France, Korea and Japan, very different places. China, very different again. Malaysia, very different again. South America, what does Canada need compared to the US? So it's a phenomenal puzzle to solve. And why I feel super proud of it is you don't see very many global pieces of work that aren't a manifesto. Mm. or a montage. Mm. Sports brands do, it's easy for them to pick an athlete and tell a story and you kind of go with that, but it's their story, so it's kind of a biography. What we did was we managed to create a narrative, a buddy movie, which we're trying to sell Australia's warm and welcoming nature and our natural beauty and our land, you know, our highlight food uh, and entertainment culture as well. That we managed to, to create, you know, this buddy film where you have all those feels and contained into a short film so it has the scale of that but also the PR ability around that because, again, Tourism Australia are, are so creatively ambitious. They love creativity and they sweat it. There's a lot of rough and tumble along the way but we always want to show up differently. They did a film trailer with Dundee, so what did we do? We go and make an actual film. When we did Mate Song, no one had ever sung a song to, I guess, their big 
brother, their big mm. sister. And that's kind of what the, the crux of that was. So we're constantly trying to ying when the rest of the tourism market are yanging. We needed to make a big splash because we we're one of the last countries open to the world post-COVID. And I think there was a whole lot of pieces to that which we can be really proud about as a ecosystem, as a launch. You know, it's it's had 110 million views in uh, a couple of weeks and 1.5 million hours of viewing time on YouTube alone, let alone all the other platforms. So we really were able to strike a chord with people. We were able to use these animated characters that were, which I think was the genius of what when Cam and Sam brought us the idea. The genius of the animated characters meant that we could localise it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Rose Byrne and Will Arnett are on the Western markets, but local superstar talent in each of the other markets can revoice those characters to make them relevant to those markets and we can also alter the narrative so we don't offend people or so it makes more cultural sense so there's so many moving parts of that campaign so huge there was 900 individual pieces of work made for it that have been rolled out in tens of thousands of ways to each of those markets from social, digital, PR, the whole shebang, down to 15, 30, 60 sort of TV spots. And they've all got a particular job to do. So the film is the, uh, the kind of crowning glory and that fame moment, but there is so much behind it in order to drive people back to Australia, which is highly important. Well, it's a spectacular piece of storytelling. And I think that with that added layer of context, it just seems so much more like it was the right decision. Like there's so much usage you can get out of the characters, the way that you can change who you're speaking to and, and how it's a likable character globally. Like, it it's makes a, a lot of sense. It's a brain, brain-bending exercise, actually. And there's some other work on the table that we absolutely loved and the client absolutely loved. And, you know, and probably with much more of a Western bent and a bit cheekier and a completely different way in, mm. but this has that thing that you're sort of talking about. It has those characters that people can latch on to, a little magician unicorn with a massive voice of Will Arnett, but an Australian kangaroo souvenir. So there you've got one of our iconic symbols straight away and all around the globe the kangaroo is love. So it becomes a great storytelling device, a merchandising device, AR filters, mm. what have you. And also there's an opportunity there for us to build it out. And it was a 18-month, two-year project to get that film up and all those other things up. But I think there's a great amount of appetite within tourism, especially with us, to see what else can we do with the characters? Can we expand on those stories? Can we expand the Hamish and Andy as emus? What could they do? Because What's I, their story? I, I, they're freaking hilarious. They have such a small part in the movie, but I see it as such a big one because they are hilarious. So... I feel like we absolutely made the right decision when we went, bang, let's go with that one. That's one thing you learn when you come into advertising. It's just how much thought goes into every decision that's made. Like the public see the end product, but they don't see how much thought has gone into why this exists and how it's going to exist in the entire ecosystem that we've created. I think when I was young, I think that's what I didn't see. Yeah. I wanted to make something cool, Mm. right? And that's why probably the Snickers campaign took, I was probably six, seven years into my career, and I actually listened to a podcast with Droger talking the other day. He put it better than than I did, but he, he was speaking about how will this piece of work actually land and impact people rather than just being one-dimensional and funny or cool or 
sentimental? Like, what are we trying to get people to feel and how is it going to make them, how is it going to fulfil the strategic objectives? How is it going to make them fall in love with Australia? And, you know, I think the Snickers thing kind of started to do that and really put itself in culture and trying to say is when you're young, you don't quite get that depth. It's just with experience, you start going, oh, I need things to pull certain levers. So I'm going to need to make sacrifices here and dial Mm. up other things over here. Yeah. It's interesting. It's definitely something you start to slowly see as you, you're you around people making great work. You go, wow, there's just so much level of thinking that's gone into this. And Make a strategist your best friend, I would yeah. say. That's always a good idea. Yeah, they unlock things for you. I had a great partner in Christina Aventi at BMF and I've got a absolutely wicked partner in Emily Taylor from The Gruen mm. at MSC Saatchi. But certainly strategists... They're there to make you famous. Like mm. you got to believe in them. You get a good one. They're gold dust. So make me a friend. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with one final question. Yep. And it's a good one. So you can take a second to breathe and think about it. But if you had one sentence to say to a 20-something-year-old Cam, what would it be? I've written it down. I knew this question was coming. I was trying to set you up with a bit of like a spontaneous <laughs> moment of genius thought. I'll let, I'll, I'll let you read it. Put down the bong. <laughs> oh, it's a good piece of advice. I think um, <laughs> put down the bong is not a bad one. Well, maybe just during weekdays. But I think you have to understand that it's not an easy job, right? Mm. You are going to take knocks and, and it works in a pattern of highs and lows. You need to try and find a way where you know that when you're feeling like they're at a peak, that there will something, you'll feel a a lull afterwards. And even like producing something like the tourism work and launching it, I now had this kind of sense of now what? Mm. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what are we going to make now? But you will have highs and lows. So you need to be able to ride through that. You need to understand that it's a long game. You need to be patient. You need to work hard. You need to be resilient. But also understand that there's people around you that will support you. Talk to people, engage with them, try and get them to help you ride the waves of advertising creativity. Mm. Awesome. Great way to wrap put it up. Put down the bong. Put down the bong. <laughs> <laughs> and put down the bong. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sweet. Cheers. Thanks for coming. Okay. Thank you, mate. Cheers. <laughs>